Now, I do believe that I could stand about another hour of that. Um, I've tried to think. Um, I try to find a good starting place. Uh, preachers always try and find some decent title to put on their sermon simply because we want to tell the congregation what we're thinking. Because uh, if I don't know where I'm going, how in the world can you follow? But when you're dealing with some of the topics and subjects in the Bible, to narrow down what you're thinking about is oftentimes very difficult. thought maybe we'd begin in Genesis, but I wasn't satisfied really with that. Sitting there thinking as we were, as we were singing, I'm reminded of a, a verse in 2 Corinthians, I think, that really just sort of kind of sums up what we would like to a bit focus our thoughts on this morning. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, the Apostle Paul is speaking about the excellency of the gospel ministry. He brings up the point in chapter 3 how that uh, when Moses spoke to the children of Israel one time, Moses had gone up on the mountain to speak with the Lord. And when he came down, having been in the presence of God, his, his face shone so bright, the children of Israel couldn't look upon him. So he put a veil over his face so that they would at least listen to what he had to say. And, and that veil of, of hiding things from those who are looking uh, is spoken about here a little bit in chapter 3. And specifically, when you, speak, when you think about this veil that hides things, uh, you can always think about that veil that hid the Ark of the Covenant uh, in the Holy of Holies there in the, te in, in the temple and in the tabernacle, it was hidden from those who wanted to see. The truth of God itself is hidden to the world around us. As a matter of fact, Paul would make the statement uh, to the Corinthian uh, brethren that uh, if our gospel be hid, it is hid to those that are lost. And this is an interesting concept. In the world around us, they think the gospel is out here just for everybody. I submit to you it is not. The gospel, if it is hid, it is hid to those who are lost. And they have to be found first by God and shown the truth of the gospel. I'd like you to notice here, uh, he says in verse 15 of 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Did I say that earlier? 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 15. He says, But even unto this day, when Moses is read, the veil is upon their heart. So, Jesus said, If you'd have believed Abraham, or if you'd have believed Moses, you'd believe me, because they spoke of me. He said in John 5, He said, Search the Scriptures. And at that time, Jesus is speaking specifically of Old Testament. He says, search the scriptures. In them, you think you have eternal life. And of course, that's the thought in religious circles today. If you just want to be saved, just read the Bible. And Jesus says, you think you've got eternal life by reading the scriptures. However, he says in John 5, 38, 
They are they which testify of me. The focus of the Scripture is not us. The focus of the Scripture is the finished work of Jesus Christ. But even today when Moses is read, there's a veil upon their heart. So, uh, as Brother Darren had mentioned in his preaching this weekend, that uh, there's some Jewish brethren that he knows that have just stopped looking for the Messiah. Because they do not see the fulfillment of the Messiah in Jesus Christ. For when Moses is read, the veil is upon their heart. They cannot see Christ in the Scriptures. Now, verse 16. Nevertheless, when it shall turn to the Lord, the veil shall be taken away. Uh, When the heart is turned towards the Lord in regeneration, that veil is taken away. When God speaks to a man's life, speaks to a man's heart, and gives him a new heart, a new creature heart, that veil is taken away, and he sees Christ as King of kings and Lord of lords. Notice verse 17. Now the Lord is that Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. That's kind of, that's kind of what I, I'm kind of satisfied to start there a little bit this morning to say that where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. When... When you observe religious practice, when you observe religious organization, when you, relig- when you observe religious activity, how can you recognize the working of the Spirit of God? The only way to recognize the working of the Spirit of God is to understand who or what the Spirit of God is. I think oftentimes the Spirit of God kind of gets overlooked sometimes in uh, teaching of the Scriptures. We focus a lot on God the Father in the Old Testament and a lot on God the Son, Jesus Christ, in the New Testament. But woven throughout the Scriptures are all three of them, actually. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. One of them may have uh, preeminence depending on where we're at. So, for example, the preeminence uh, in the Old Testament was God the Father. Jehovah, Yahweh, all through the Old Testament. Pointing to the coming of God the Son, Jesus Christ, in the Gospels. And then the proclamation of the Gospel from there on out is pointing to the Lord Jesus Christ. Yet Jesus is not here today in bodily flesh and form. Now we have the unction of the Holy Spirit guiding the church as it honors God the Son. So when when you open up the Bible, you turn to Genesis chapter 1, And you're introduced to God and the Spirit of God. That in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. 
Uh, here's also something that's worthy, worth asking yourself. Excuse me. Something worth asking yourself. If we say we believe a thing, do we believe it just because we want to believe it? Or do we believe it because there's evidence that propels us to believe it? Do you believe that it's going to snow today? I mean, really, I mean, if I told you right now, we're going to quit early so that you can go get your milk and your bread because it's going to snow this afternoon, would you not look at me a little daffy? There's not enough current evidence right now, though be it we are in Alabama, and if you don't like the weather, give it a day or two and it'll change, but there's not enough current evidence right now to back up the fact I said, I believe it's going to snow. Kind of sound like a crackpot. People who believe, believe solely based on evidence, if they believe what's true. Now, there are some psychos out there who believe things simply because they want to be difficult. But when it comes to Christian foundations, if we say we believe something, it ought to be founded and grounded in what the Word of God says. So if I said to you that I believe that there is a literal, actual sixth day of creation, I ought to be able to back that up from the Scriptures, right? I ought to be able to find somewhere in the Scriptures where it tells us there is a literal, actual, physical six-day creation. And I think we can. The Bible starts off with the concept, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And he goes on to tell us in verse 2 that the earth was without form and void and darkness was upon the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. Here we are introduced here to what we would refer to as the third person in the Trinity, the Spirit of God. Now, there's not enough evidence in Genesis 1-2 to tell us that the Spirit of God is an actual, real, physical person. Uh, sometimes we refer to somebody's presence as their spirit, or the way that somebody thinks their spirit, or, or a movement that someone starts. Uh, I'm going to start a movement, whatever it is. I die. People are going to carry on that movement in the spirit of Philip. So in Genesis 1, it doesn't really tell us that the Spirit of God is more than an unction. It doesn't tell us it's more than just God's influence on us. But it does tell us that it's active. That's something important to understand, that the Spirit of God in Genesis 1 was active. He did something. Uh, notice also for me, in uh, just kind of move through the Bible just a little bit there, we move to Genesis uh well, I'm getting a little ahead of myself on this one because there's something I'm forgetting about this. In Genesis 1, there is this account of a six-day creation. You have enough sense, right, maybe, to read the Bible and read Genesis 1 and realize that the way of creation was this. God spoke and it happened. That's kind of outlined at least six times. In Genesis 1, God spoke. God said, you know, the first thing He did was He said, let there be light, and there was light. The light didn't argue with God. The light didn't cooperate with God. 
The light didn't go before God and ask to be light. God went first and God said, let there be light. God said, let there be stars in the heavens. God said, let there be land, let there be water. God created and it occurred. There is a direct connection between the physical creation of this world and the spiritual creation of your new birth. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, I believe it is. He tells us that we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works. You notice how he, says, how he tells you there in Ephesians that you were created in Christ Jesus unto good works. You're not created because of your good works. Good works follow your creation. When God gives you new life, when God borns you again, then good works come after that. Belief comes after that. Faith comes after that. Baptism comes after that. Works are those things that follow life. They do not create life. Excuse me. God's work created your life. Your work does not create your own. As a matter of fact, Jesus told the, told the, the men in John chapter 10, He says, uh, when they came to Him, they says, uh, if they'll be the Christ, tell us plainly. He says, I told you, you believe not. The works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me. In John 10, when Jesus said, my works bear witness of me, He is saying, my works do not make me Christ. My works do not make me the King of kings and the Lord of lords. My works do not make me divine. My works show I am divine. He did what He did because of who He was. Not to make Him something He needed to be. Your faith and your belief, your good works and your godly living do not cause you to be a child of God. They are an outflowing of the fact you are a child of God. And the creation that God demonstrates in Genesis, in Genesis 1 uh, is, is tied forever to your new birth. And you can turn to the book of Titus in the New Testament and you can get a little bit of, uh, uh, of an idea of this. In Titus chapter 3, Verse 3. Now, there are about uh, four of the five principles of grace that we believe laid out here in Titus chapter 3. First of them is the depravity of man. Titus chapter 3, verse 3. For we ourselves also were sometime foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving diverse lust and pleasure, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. Here's the resume of human beings. Here's the resume of a man not born of the Spirit. A man who what the world would say is lost or unsaved or on the way to hell. Take your pick, whatever, they, whatever adjective you want to put on this. Notice this wonderful description of this person. What does it say? We ourselves were foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving diverse lusts and pleasure, living in malice, Hateful and hating one another. Any good thing in that verse? Any righteousness found anywhere in that verse? Bunch of dirt in that verse, right? Bunch of sin in that verse, right? Bunch of unholiness in that verse, right? So where's the righteousness come from? 
keep reading. But after that, he might often could say in spite of that. But after that, the kindness and love of God our Savior toward men appeared. The kindness and love of God our Savior appeared toward us. Why? Why did the kindness and love of God our Savior appear towards us? Oh, because we needed to be saved, because we showed God how worthy we were, because we showed God how much we cared. Any of that fitting into this verse? No. The Bible's going to answer that question. The kindness and love of God our Savior appeared toward men, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His own mercy, He saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost. By the way, keep reading. Verse 6 says, which He shed on us abundantly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. You notice in this text that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are all mentioned. And did you also notice in verse 4, it's God our Savior? And in verse 6, it's Jesus Christ, our Savior. Well, well, which one is it? Do we have two Saviors here? Is God our Savior? Or is Jesus our Savior? Or is God and Jesus the same person? Are we talking about three separate individuals? Or are we talking about three sides of the same triangle? You see, here's a problem that I've kind of come across lately in trying to decipher in the Old Testament and in the New Testament the concept of the Trinity. And I've about come to the point this is a foolish and dumb thing for us to try and do. Because about the time you about the time you've attributed one attribute to God the Father and you got that nailed down, next thing you know, God the Son's creeping in on this and saying, Hey, that belongs to me also. And then up pops the Holy Spirit and says, Hey, don't forget I'm part of this as well. So the idea of separating the three into three little boxes like we try to do as human beings will not fit when you're discussing the Godhead. Because He's not like us. But you see here, there's a, there's a creative act here. There's a creation that occurs that the Holy Spirit comes upon you and washes you and regenerates you and gives you new birth not by works of righteousness that you've done but according to his own mercy and grace. So there's a, there's a constant connection with that. Now, let's, let's go back here a little bit, though, in the book of Genesis. Uh, Genesis 41. Genesis 41 deals with the life of a man named Joseph who is down uh, in Egypt. He's down here. He's a prisoner in Egypt. You, you've been here long enough. We've talked about Joseph enough times. Surely you know the story about Joseph. He's down here in Egypt. Genesis 41, what happens? Pharaoh has a dream. Pharaoh has the uh, seven fat cows and the seven lean cows. And he wants to know what the deal with all this is. Finally, somebody remembers, hey, there's a, there's a guy stuck down here in prison. And uh, I had a dream and he interpreted it and it came true. I bet he can interpret your dream. And so Pharaoh go gets Joseph and brings him out and tells him this dream. And Joseph interprets it properly, telling him there's going to be seven famine years, or there's going to be seven years of plenty, followed by seven years of famine. So in the time of plenty, save 
your money. America, save your money. Stop spending it like there's no tomorrow. By the way, if our government can just print money anytime they feel like it, why am I paying taxes? Why don't they just let me keep all my money? And then when they need something, they just print money. Anyways, here's Joseph. He's saying, you better save up for those times of leanness. And here's what Pharaoh says. Genesis 41, verse 38. Pharaoh said unto his servants, Can we find such a one as this is, a man in whom the Spirit of God is? Now that's, that's the statement he makes about this individual. It's, when I asked you earlier, when you observe religious exercise, when you reserve, observe religious observance, when you say I belong to a religious or Christian church, can you recognize the working and presence of the Holy Spirit? The only way to recognize the work of the Holy Spirit is to understand what the Holy Spirit does. That's really not that hard. Here he says, in whom, uh, in a man, in whom is the Spirit of God. Is there anything leading up to this, this story that you could go back and read? Is there anything in Joseph's life that would make you think that with the Spirit of God in his life, there's a bunch of noise and confusion and a hooping and a hollering in front of Pharaoh? Get what I'm, you get what I'm leading at here? Are you picking up what I'm dropping? You see, when the Holy Spirit and the Spirit of God moved upon, upon the face of the waters in Genesis chapter 1, He did not move to bring chaos out of order. He did not move to make some unreasonable, unrecognizable world for us to live in. He did exactly the opposite. He brought order and stability to that which was in chaos. And you're going to find out when the Holy Spirit in the Scriptures gets a hold of people and nations, one of the first things He does is calm everybody down. Here's this individual. He stands before Pharaoh. And Pharaoh makes some observation here that in him is the Spirit of God. I'd like you to keep on going. And Pharaoh said uh, in verse 39 unto Joseph, For as much as God hath showed thee all this, there is none so discreet and wise as thou art. Wait a minute. Okay. Okay. In Genesis 1, we found out that the Holy Spirit kind of organized a few things. Uh, in Genesis 49, 41, we're finding out that there's a man here with discretion and wisdom. Discretion is that which enables a person to judge critically of what is correct and proper. Uh, discretion is missing greatly uh, in the lives of a lot of American people. They do not know how to be wise. They do not know how to be discreet. They do not know how to be uh, bashful and blush. They do not know how to think beyond the tip of their nose, as we would say. And that's essentially what uh, Joseph was doing. He was not saying that in this day of, of prosperity, go out and burn all your money. He said, you better think about times when you may not have a job or you may not have food to eat 
you better start saving something for the lean times. You might think your parents are irritating you and aggravating you and yelling at you about things like that, but guess what? God did it first. Now, <clears throat> turn to Second Peter uh, chapter 1. In Second Peter chapter 1, Let, let me ask you this. This is a Christian church, right? One of our uh, one of our articles of faith, as a matter of fact, I think it's the second article of faith, actually, is that we believe that the scriptures of the Old and New Testament are the only rule of faith and practice, specifically the New Testament scriptures for New Testament church. Why do we do what we do is the question. Now, I realize that uh, this always puzzled me when folks said we're going to have conference on such and such day and we're going to adhere to Robert's rules of order. Who on God's planet gave Robert the right to tell the church what to do? Nobody gave him the authority to come in here and tell us how to run this, build, run this business. Your only rule of faith and practice is God's Word. If you can't find it in God's Word, you probably ought not to do it. If this Bible is not your foundation for what you do, why do anything? Why even have it? Unless you want to be like those in Isaiah 4, where he says, In that day shall seven women take hold of one man, saying, Well, eat her own bread, we'll wear on apparel, only let us be called by thy name to take away our reproach. Oftentimes, uh, bread in the Bible is, taught, is, is referred to as doctrine, and apparel is righteousness. And they're saying, We're going to do our own thing, we're going to teach our own doctrine, we're going to look and dress how we want to look, but we're going to do it in Jesus' name to take away our reproach. You cannot have it both ways. You cannot connect the name of Christ to a bunch of garbage in life and expect Him to be pleased with it. Either this book matters or it doesn't. In 2 Peter chapter 1, uh, I'd like you to notice here. Verse 16. Everybody with me? We find 2 Peter chapter 1. Verse 16. Peter says, we've not followed cunningly devised fables when we may known unto you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. So, what I'm telling you, Peter says, I didn't make this up. And secondly, this is not just a bunch of Jewish fables passed down from generation to generation that we tweaked or we uh, worked on or we manipulated to apply to today. He says, what I'm telling you, I saw myself. You see that? Peter says, I was an eyewitness of His majesty. Verse 17, for He received, He that is Christ, for Christ received from God the Father honor and glory when there came such a voice to Him from the excellent glory, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And this voice which came from heaven, we heard when we were with Him in the Holy Mount. 
Remember Matthew 17? Peter, James, and John are up on that mountain. Peter says, oh, it's good for us to be here. Let's make three tabernacles. One to you, one to Moses, one to Elijah. Yeah, blah, 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 blah. And a voice comes from heaven and says, Peter, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Hear ye him. This is an eyewitness account from the Apostle Peter. Can you really uh, deny an eyewitness account of somebody? You better hold the phone on that one. National Geographic did a great big study about eyewitnesses in the courtroom. Some of them thinking they saw what they say they saw and they didn't see what they see. Watch this, though. I'm pretty sure when the Holy Spirit was working on these men, they were sure of what they saw and they were sure of what they wrote because the Bible tells us that. But I'd like for you to notice something here. Peter says, this is my eyewitness testimony. Verse 19. We have also a more sure word of prophecy. Whereunto you do well that you take heed as unto a light that shineth in a dark place until the day dawn and the day star arise in your hearts. Peter says there is something that is more sure than my eyewitness testimony. And you're holding it in your hand right now. The inspired, preserved, infallible word of God. Because notice what the next verse says. Verse 20, knowing this, that no prophecy of the Scripture is of any private interpretation. A lot of people want to take a verse, pull it out, put a whole doctrine around it. They hadn't even considered the context that the verse fits in. There is no verse in this Bible that allows you to take it out of context and apply it solely only to your life without you looking at the context as a whole. For example, there was a man pastor who was counseling a woman who had left her husband. And he wanted to find out how, why this happened. How did you get to this point? And she said, the Lord told me to do this. Really? Well, pray tell, how did he do this? She said, I just said to the Lord, Lord, I need direction. And I just, I'll just go open the Bible and read the first thing that I find. And she opened it and she plopped her finger down in Ephesians where it says, put off the old man and put on the new. I believe that's a little misapplication of a text, don't you think? But if you're just in the business of cherry picking what makes you feel good, well, that text fits just as good as anything. So, Janice, just put off the old man and put on the new one. You'll be happier, right? No. Well, that's a misapplication. That's an adulteration of God's Word, is it not? No scriptures of any private interpretation. Verse 21. For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man. But holy men of God spake, as what does that say? As they were moved by the Holy Ghost. These holy men spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. So here the Holy Ghost is active in putting together the, the, the canon of these books that you read. As a matter of fact, there are several places in Scripture and uh, the book of Acts uh, talks about the Holy Ghost spoke through David, Acts 1.16, uh, concerning that Judas would be gone and someone would need to take his spot. Uh, Hebrews 3.7, 1 
Holy Ghost says, if you'll hear his voice, harden not your hearts, as in the day of provocation in the wilderness. But that was written by David back there in Psalm 95. It was written by David, but who who initially said it? Holy Ghost said it. The Holy Ghost's fingerprints are all over the Bible. Let's turn uh, just for a few minutes here to the book of Acts. Because this is where we get real tripped up a lot of times in, in our daily life. Because the Holy Spirit comes upon the scene in Acts chapter uh, in Acts chapter two. Uh, actually, it was prophesied by the Lord Jesus Christ when He told His disciples uh, to tarry in Jerusalem until you be endued with power from on high. And that term endued means to also be filled. Be filled with power from on high. There's something going to ignite the church as it goes out into the world. And that igniting is going to be the Holy Ghost. It will not be a political reformation. It will not be environmental reformation. It will be the power of the Holy Ghost guiding the ministers and its church through this world. It's very obvious when you read through, especially, say, Acts 2, that when those men got the gift to speak with tongues, that it was not unrecognizable gibberish. In Acts 2, it says in verse 4 that they were all filled with the Holy Ghost and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So here it tells us they were filled with the Spirit and they began to speak with other tongues. The question is asked in verse 8, by all the men that are gathered there, and keep in mind there are men there from multiple nations who gathered for the day of Passover. Verse 8, it says, how, well, verse 7, and they were all amazed and marveled, saying one to another, behold, are not all these which speak Galileans? Uh, keep in mind when you're talking about these that are speaking called Galileans, do you remember that text that they said about the apostles that they took note that they were unlearned and ignorant men? you remember that? That's important for you to know. These men are not uh, highly educated, bilingual, multilingual individuals here. They're ignorant carpenters and fishermen. You get the point? Because notice what they say here. They're, are they not all Galileans? Are they not all unlearned and ignorant men? Verse 8. And how hear we every man in our own tongue wherein we were born? Does that text say something other than what I'm reading? Am I, am I mistaking what this text is saying? The text says... We are hearing people in our own tongue. So this is not some strange thing, then, is it? This is a known human dialect. What has occurred here? 
What has occurred here is that the Holy Spirit has come down on the day of Pentecost and He has reversed what God the Father did at the Tower of Babel in Genesis chapter 11. When God came down and confounded the language because they were using it not to glorify Him, He's put His church in the world now and He sent His Spirit down and His Spirit now has swapped that and He's an immediate, right now, mediator between those that are speaking and those that are hearing. This is not unrecognizable jargon. And by the way, it doesn't say they spoke in tongues. It said they spoke with tongues. And the men having the ability to speak with other tongues is not to glorify themselves. How many times have you heard this? That the Spirit of God and the gift of the Spirit is to benefit that person. It is not. Very seldom does God ever give you a gift for you. The majority of times that God gives you a gift is so you can share it with somebody else. Um, <clears throat> the Scriptures are full of men doing reasonable, recognizable things, especially when filled with the Spirit. So, for example, turn over to uh, Acts 4, the next chapter. Or next page. In my book, it's the next page. Uh, Acts 4, verse 8. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Ghost, said unto them, Ye rulers of the people and elders of Israel. That's as far as I want to go with that. You can read the rest of the passage. The point is, Peter's filled with the Spirit and he speaks reasonably and legibly. You get the point? We'll go on another one. Uh, in uh, chapter 4, verse 31, it says, When they had prayed, the place was shaken, where they were assembled together, and they were all filled with the Holy Ghost, and they spake the Word of God with boldness. Oh, okay. Here we go. So, the Spirit of God is going to allow them to communicate with one another, and then the Spirit of God is also going to allow them to be bold when speaking the Word. Oh, don't we need that? Don't we need the Spirit of God to allow us to be, and encourage us to be bold when speaking His Word? Haven't you ever noticed how hard it is to have family devotions? Haven't you ever noticed how hard it is to pray at the dinner table or to pray in public in front of people? Have you ever noticed how embarrassed people get? That's why they don't come forth to be baptized. They think we're going to ask them to be a super Christian. You ever noticed how people get embarrassed praying publicly, reading publicly, having family devotions, but people are not embarrassed to curse, yell, holler, swear, and foam at the mouth at their neighbor? You ever notice that? People are not embarrassed to roll down their window in the car. They're not, they're not embarrassed about that. You know, because we don't need the Lord's help to be ugly. You ever notice that? We don't need God's help. I'd have, that's the one area I have no need for God's help in my life. I do not need God's help to help me to be ugly, sinful, and hateful. I got that all on my own. I desperately need His help to be something better than that. 
I need to be filled with his spirit. To be able to do that which is good, godly, and righteous. Uh, in the idea that the Holy Spirit, and, and some people they say, well, the Holy Spirit is just, uh, it's just an unction from God. It's not really, uh, it's not really a real person. It's just an unction from God. Well, I've already read to you a few places where it says that the Holy Spirit has done this, or the Holy Spirit spake by David. Uh, you know, that ought to be enough to tell you that the Holy Spirit is not just an unction; He's an actual, real person. But uh, look in Acts five for me. In Acts chapter 5, when, this is the story of uh, Ananias and Sapphira. You know, this is, the, this is the couple here in the New Testament day that they sold a piece of property they had. Now, <clears throat> they sold this property and they kept back some of the proceeds and the rest of it they gave to the church. Now, what you have to understand about this is it was not wrong for them to keep back some of the proceeds for themselves. Nowhere in this text are they told that what they did was wrong by keeping some of it back. Did you all hear that? I'm not telling you all to go sell all you have and give every bit of it away and go live homeless and destitute under a bridge. I'm not telling you that if you want a blessing, give all your money to me. Write me a check. You know, you want to say to that fellow on the TV, you want a blessing, send me a check. Seems like only one of us is getting rich in this deal and that one of us ain't me. Their, their sin here is that they kept it back, but they told the disciples, oh no, this is all we got. So they sold it for $100. You know, they kept, what, $75 or whatever. Oh, we sold a piece of property. Here's $25. That's all we got. That was the problem. You catch it? Let's listen to what the Scripture says. <clears throat> Peter said to Ananias, verse 3, Why has Satan filled thine heart to lie to the Holy Ghost and to keep back part of the price of the land? While it remained, was it not thine own? And after it was sold, was it not thine own power? Why hast thou conceived this thing in thine heart? Thou hast not lied unto men, but unto God. Hey, an idea can't be lied to. An unction can't be lied to. But a person can be lied to, right? And secondly, did you notice that the Scripture said here, Why has Satan filled thine heart to lie to the Holy Ghost? You see that? He called it the Holy Ghost in, what, verse 3? Then he turns right around in verse 4 and he says, Thou hast not lied to men, but thou hast lied to... Who? God. The Holy Spirit and God must be in, in connection with one another, right? Listen, folks, this really is not that hard. There's a lot of people that go to fancy schools and they spend a lot of money to get half the alphabet behind their name. And some of that's all well and good. You little lambs out there, this is not that hard. Just read the Bible. I promise you the Bible is what it says. You don't have to go down here to some big cemetery and get a degree behind your name to understand God's Word. Read the Bible. It means what it says and it says what it means. This really is not 
that hard. But here, what does it tell us? It tells us that the Spirit of God can be lied to. Paul tells us in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 that the Spirit of God can be quenched. He says, quench not the Spirit of God. In Ephesians chapter 4, he tells us to grieve not the Holy Spirit. This is uh, Ephesians 4 and verse 30. He says to us, grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby you are sealed unto the day of redemption. You ever wondered about, uh, you ever wonder about that concept of grieving the Holy Spirit? Do you think you have the ability to grieve the Holy Spirit? Oh, I bet you do. I bet if the Holy Spirit were asked, he'd probably put his head in his hand every time your name come up. Here's a thought that I had about this. <clears throat> the Bible says, grieve not the Holy Spirit. So some have the idea that here, here sits God upon his throne, and he's just watching the whole unsaved, lost world just go to hell, and it's just hurting him, and he's just crying. It's just grieving him to no end. In Proverbs chapter 17 and verse 25, the Bible says in Proverbs 17 and verse 25 that a foolish son is a grief to his father and bitterness to her that bear him. Did you catch that? It didn't say that a foolish world or a foolish neighbor says a foolish son family member is a grief to his father and bitterness to her that bear him. God is not grieved at the wicked world around us. As a matter of fact, a matter of fact in, in uh, Psalm 7 and verse 11, it says that God is angry with the wicked every day. The idea that God uh, loves all sinners is foreign to the Scriptures. God is angry with the wicked every day. Psalm 7, verse 11. Psalm 5, verse 5 says God hates all workers, not works, workers of iniquity. God is not grieved at the wicked world around us. But oh, is He not grieved when I do that which is not right. Oh, is He not grieved at my disobedience and my rebellion, and my slothfulness. In Ephesians chapter 5, we've got another example here of being filled with the Spirit. So when somebody says something has occurred at our church or at our house or something has occurred in public and we've been filled with the Spirit, how do we know? Do we know what the Spirit does? Are we able to really recognize the filling of the Spirit? Well, here the Apostle Paul tells us in uh, Ephesians 5, he says, be filled with the Spirit. Well, it's a real good place to find out then what we're supposed to look for, right? Ephesians 5, verse 18. Be not drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit. Oh, there is a heap of truth in that verse. TV portrays people being drunk with wine. Drunk with excess. What do we usually know about those who are drunk with wine, drunk on alcohol? They're not in control of themselves, are they? 
They say things that they shouldn't say. Their sentences don't make sense. They're inventing scenarios in their head that you cannot see. Any of this sound familiar? You go down to to the church down the street and they say, we're filled with the Spirit. Well, what are we seeing here? A bunch of people rolling around on the ground, a bunch of people jumping up and down, a bunch of people hooping and hollering. And the thought occurred to me. I read about weeping and wailing. And it was never connected to the church. Any of y'all connecting the dots here? Perhaps y'all all live in ivory towers and y'all have not had the experiences that some of us have had before. But when you get in some of these places and there's weeping and there's wailing and there's jumping and there's shouting, you can show me in the Bible where any of that is connected to the gospel church, I'll change the name right now. Here Paul says, be not drunk with wine. There's excess in that. There is memory forgiveness in that. There is uh, problems associated with that. He says, but be filled with the Spirit. So obviously then, being filled with the Spirit is going to be opposite of what being drunk with wine is. That's why the illustration is given. How do we be filled with the Spirit? How do we know that our congregation is filled with the Spirit? Number one, verse 19. Speaking to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord. There is a companion passage to this, and that is Colossians chapter 3. And in Colossians chapter 3 it says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. Preacher, why do y'all just sing? Why don't y'all put a big band up there and help everybody out? Because it sure would help your sorry singing sometimes. When my daddy told me as I was younger, stop running. Walk. That didn't mean that I had the right to just walk a little bit faster or run a little bit slower. That didn't mean I had the right to hop and skip. That didn't mean I had the right to turn over and do a handstand. If we're walking across you know, a busy intersection, and my father says, look both ways, walk across the street. He didn't want me pole vaulting. He didn't want me cartwheeling. He didn't want me somersaulting. He told me what to do, right? When God told Moses, uh, uh, God told Noah, build an ark, right? Noah, yeah. You need an ark. I know a guy, yeah. He told Noah, build an ark. Build it with gopher wood. Notice he did not say, don't use mahogany, don't use birch, don't use oak, don't use dogwood. He said, use gopher wood. By the fact of what he told him to do, he eliminated all the other possibilities. When Paul tells the church here, speak to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your hearts and singing with grace in your hearts, He has told you what to do and He has eliminated everything else. Because a lot of times when you get to these other places and the band starts playing, they drowned out the sound of the voices and you cannot hear the people 
anymore. And I've sat and I've watched these people. I've sat and I've watched as the drum keeps beating and the band keeps playing, the people quit singing. Because you can't hear yourself. It's entirely too loud. Speak to yourselves and song. And, you know, doesn't your attitude get to be just a little bit better when you come into a good congregation like this and you hear these wonderful songs? Victory in Jesus. Blessed assurance. Jesus is mine. Doesn't your attitude change just a little bit when these words permeate your thoughts and your mind? In your spirit, and your soul, you've got these deep, dark, troubled times. And you remind yourself, when overwhelmed with doubts and fear, there's a teaching to yourself and a teaching to others that goes on in the singing of these hymns. Second way to know if somebody's filled with spirit, verse 20. Giving thanks always for all things unto God and the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Ooh. How many of y'all want to just get up and walk out right now? Because how many people do you know and how many times do you know in your own life you've not been filled with a grateful spirit? Boy, complaining just, it solves everything, doesn't it? Boy, griping just solves everything, doesn't it? Complaining that other people won't do what you want them to do and allow you to control everything they do in life. Boy, that just really works, doesn't it? It works to get you in a tizzy is what it does. It doesn't solve any situation. It doesn't help you. Giving thanks. I'll have to admit I have a hard time giving thanks. I am. I'm an unthankful person. And I know you're an unthankful person. Because the Bible had already told us that. That we're all unthankful and ungrateful people. Jesus healed ten lepers. One turned around to say thank you. Jesus said, were there not uh, ten lepers cleansed? Where are the other nine? And so what does that mean? That means really that uh, 100% of the time, we're probably only thankful about 10% of it. And that 10% of the time, we're not as thankful 90% of it as we ought to be. All right. Step number three. Submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of God. Ooh. Oh, that sweet, lovely topic of submission. Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands. No man tells me what to do. You're wrong. Men tell you what to do every day. Your boss tells you what to do. Judges tell you what to do. Policemen tell you what to do. Your shift manager tells you what to do. The man standing in front of you without even a high school diploma holding a stop sign and an orange cone is telling you to stop or go. People tell you what to do every day. You just pick the family to fight about it. You think that standing up for your so-called rights in the family is noble. And we don't realize 
that as we fuss and fight in the family, we are planting the seeds of disintegration in the nation. There's one more thing that I'd like to get to. My, my time has very quickly gotten away from me. And I've got, well, i got another hour's worth of stuff here. Y'all going anywhere today? Maybe we should come back for afternoon service. Ah, let me, let me just give you one more here. Isaiah chapter 32. Bear with me a few minutes. Because I guarantee you that when Roger goes back and looks at the tape, we did start about 10 minutes late. So, you know, don't cheat me for 10 minutes I didn't use. Uh, symbols mean something, right? Not like your driver's license. That thing doesn't mean anything. I've never looked like that, right? Uh, but symbols symbols in the Bible mean something. Uh, when Moses was told to put a, a snake on a stick and hold it up before Israel in the book of Numbers, that snake on a stick meant something. It symbolized sin being crucified to a tree. What's the symbol of the Holy Ghost that's demonstrated in the New Testament? You see this everywhere. You see this on billboards. You see this on magazines, Christian television shows. What is the symbol of the Holy Spirit that's used in the world around us? It's a dog. Tricked you. It's a dove. When Jesus Christ was baptized, what happened? He came forth out of the water, heard a voice from heaven. This is my beloved son. Here, got all three of them together again. My goodness. And the Holy Spirit descended in the bodily shape and form of a dove and lighted upon him. If the presence and filling of the Holy Spirit is to be dictated by the amount of noise that's made in the congregation. Then why didn't God choose a rooster or a screech owl to represent the Holy Spirit than a dove, which is one of the most docile, quietest, and he also said in the Gospel of Matthew, be harmless as doves. One of the most docile, quietest creatures God has made. If the measure of the Spirit in a congregation is to be measured by how much noise is generated by the people, then why did he choose a dove? He should have chosen something else. He chose rightly because the presence of the Holy Spirit all throughout the Bible, not only does it bring discretion and wisdom, not only does it allow communication and order, but it also brings quiet and peace. Isaiah 32. Isaiah 32 is a messianic prophecy. Now, you may ask yourself, is that really a messianic prophecy when Christ comes? Or is it a messianic prophecy when Christ comes back the second time? At this point, it doesn't matter. At this point, it's not going to matter because the Holy Spirit being involved in it and the result of that Holy Spirit isn't going to change. Isaiah 32. He's talking about, let's take verse 14. He says, because the palaces shall be forsaken, 
The multitude of the city shall be left. The forts and the towers shall be dens forever. A joy of wild asses and pasture of flocks. He's talking about a time of desolation. Y'all kind of get that a little bit here. Notice verse 15. What's that next word? Until. Until what? Until the Spirit be poured upon us from on high. And this is what's going to happen when the Spirit gets poured out. The wilderness be a fruitful field. The fruitful field be counted for a forest. Then judgment shall dwell in the wilderness. Righteousness remain in the fruitful field. And the work of righteousness shall be peace. And the effect of righteousness, quietness and assurance forever. And my people shall dwell in a peaceable habitation and in sure dwellings and in quiet resting places. What's the effect of the Holy Spirit being poured out? Peacefulness. Quietness. Now, does that mean, uh, does that mean quietness and there's no activity at all? No, no certainly not. Uh, have you ever met somebody who had a gentle, uh, easygoing spirit? They had a quiet temperament about themselves? You ever sat down in the corner and not been interfered with and actually had some quiet reading time? The measure of the Spirit is dictated by the amount of noise that's made. Would you be happy this afternoon when you left church and you cranked up your vehicle and it went... See, y'all think I'm playing. And, you know, sometimes you have to be uh, ridiculous for people to see the absurd. We all like when we turn our car on, have a nice, quiet running engine, correct? Because if something's going, <laughs> there's something wrong with that. There's some O2 sensor off, there's some timing belt that's off. Something's wrong if it's making that much noise, right? Yet contained within that engine, within that crankcase, that combustion engine, there is a fire blowing every piston that's moving. It's contained. It's quiet. I can say that in my life and in your life, when things have gotten rough and ragged, things have gotten out of hand. There's no better time for us than at that point to go off somewhere quiet in a closet in a corner and just spend time with the Lord. And that when His presence overshadows us in the midst of our darkness and our despair, there's a peacefulness that comes over our life. There's a quiet that comes over our life. We can say that Spirit of God is there. That's not to mean that there can't be some joy and some shouting. Plenty of times in the Old Testament it said, let the redeemed of the Lord say amen. You hear something you like? What ought you to say? Amen. That's right. Amen means so be it. That's just the way it is. God allows for that. God allows for shouts of joy and cheer, but... Um, 
you can kind of tell sometimes when it's motivated by the Spirit and when it's motivated by human intent. I'm refreshed this morning being here. I really am. Uh, I'm delighted to be here. Song singing was refreshing not only today, but all weekend. The fellowship has been refreshing all weekend. I kind of hate the fact we got to go back to work tomorrow. Uh, I, I, amen. There we go. There's a good amen on that one. Uh, if if your church is filled with the Spirit, can you recognize it? Because the Bible says where the Spirit of the Lord is, there's liberty. There's freedom. Singing's not as hard when the Spirit of God is there. Preaching is not that hard when the Spirit of God is there. Life itself is not that hard when the Spirit of God is there. Thank you for your good, kind, and patience.